Good afternoon, and welcome to the Middle East Forum's webinar and podcast series, Israel Insider with Ashley Perry. I'm Stacey Roman, and I will be moderating this discussion today. We are pleased to have Mr. Ashley Perry, advisor to the Middle East Forum's Israel office, join us here each Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern to update us on all the events going on in Israel. Mr. Perry will be giving us a briefing on current Israeli affairs for 15 minutes and open it up for questions. Should you wish to ask a question, please use the Q&A box located at the bottom of your screen to type your question. And now with no further ado, I'll turn the discussion over to Mr. Ashley Perry. Thank you very much, uh, Stacey, and uh, good evening from Israel. Uh, today we're going to, with 96 days, uh, 95, 96 days until the elections, we're going to look ahead uh, and see if we can start to define what these elections are going to be about. Obviously, there's a lot of time ahead, but what everyone keeps on talking about is there is a lot of time, but there isn't. And what they mean by that is even though there's over three months to go, we mustn't forget um, for the next uh, month at least is going to be the holiday vacation. So parties aren't going to spend too much of their time you know, with hard campaigning. And then uh, you know, uh, the schools go back uh, so you have most of September, but then you have the Jewish holidays, which will take up, uh, if I'm uh, correct, the, the end of September and most of October. And again, that is a time where it's uh, many parties already started to say it's a little bit wasted uh, because people are focused on the holidays and people will either be enjoying them uh, here in Israel or maybe traveling. Um, so really, there's not actually <clears throat> that much time uh, in these elections, and that's why it's a it's a larger period than usually you have to campaign because there's so much uh, involved. Um, so, what what we can tell from now um, is a few things. First of all, again, we saw tonight um, a not unexpected partnership between Ayelet Shakir's Yamina. Don't forget, Naftali Bennett has decided to. Uh, sit out these elections. So Yamina is now led by Ayelet Shaked, uh, a very uh, sort of, uh, the party's been ripped apart, as we know, Orbach, uh, Shikli, uh, and some others have already left the party. So she didn't have much of a party. So uh, up until today, including today, she's not expected to pass the electoral threshold. But what, what did happen today is that, again, these are negotiations that have been ongoing for a while, she did join with um, uh, Joes Hendel and Speaker Hauser, Eretz, uh, what was their, I can't remember the name of their party, but anyway, the point is that they've joined today and now they formed a party called the Zionist Spirit. Now this party, like quite a few others, is trying to take the place of what has been called the uh, sort of, uh, what's called in Hebrew, Yamin Mamlachti. It's a very hard word, Mamlachti, to translate um, but probably what it means most is the sort of is the sensible right uh, the authoritative right the the right that puts the country first it's not the extreme right basically and that's the space which is occupied by themselves Likud are trying to move into that space um, they're trying to get away from some of the more extreme comments even though with primary season uh, in Likud ahead uh, a lot of uh, uh, candidates for the Likud list are trying to differentiate themselves. Some of them are trying to deal with the issues, but there are others who are trying to differentiate themselves and make a lot of noise by coming out with extreme comments. 
executing people in the judiciary. We're going to knock down the, the Supreme Court. We're going to uh, attack the leftists, et cetera, et cetera. There are some very extreme comments that have come out because it is liquid primaries. A lot of people are trying to run uh, for the list there. So, so there, you know, the, we've already seen a certain amount of mudslinging and that's in-house, don't forget, that's just the internal liquid primaries. Um, but there's also Tikva Khadasha, uh, Gidon Saar's party, which has joined with uh, Blue and White, which is also trying to reach out to that space. And Yisrael Beitenu. Uh, Yisrael Beitenu is trying to also paint itself as the liberal right. Uh, they're not using the word as much these days, but they have in the past. The secular right, you know, there's a lot of right-wing parties which are, uh, go from the ultra-Orthodox to the Khardal, which is the uh, more conservative wing of the religious Zionist movement to the mainstream religious Zionist movement and even the traditional elements within the Likud. So Yisrael Beitenu is trying to differentiate itself by saying it's more secular, uh, more liberal uh, in its various meanings uh, on the right. So it's quite a crowded area. But again, as we saw Ayelet Shekhet and Yoes Hendel take to the stage tonight to declare their union, again, uh, we talked about it last week with Gantz and Saar. There was little to no mention of ideology, little to no mention of actual policies. It was, again, just trying to say where they stand on the map, just trying to say how they would be able to form a government, what kind of government they would like uh, to form. There was little to no mention. In fact, I think there was no mention of uh, Netanyahu. That was a big uh, division. Uh, between the two, uh, U.S. Hendel, as we know, who has worked with Netanyahu before, as has Speaker Hauser, his partner, are both, uh, you know, uh, very anti-Netanyahu, have said in the past they will not sit in a government. It's not an ideological issue. It's a personal one. They've sat next to Netanyahu. They've understood what the man stands for. This is what they believe, that he is unfit to run the country, not from an ideological point of view. In fact, probably both of them are to the right of Netanyahu on many issues. They just have a problem with the way he leads. Uh, Eilat Sheket has, uh, as someone who is trying to prevent uh, us going from elections and trying to uh, form a, a right-wing party uh, in the few days uh, before the dispersal of Knesset law passed, uh, is someone who would sit with Netanyahu and has said so. So they were trying to see how that would, uh, how they could square that circle. It seems that the message they're putting out is that they want a like many other parties, they want a larger government that's not just one sec one side or the other. They don't want a small, a smaller, I should say, uh, uh, government which is just based on one wing uh, or the other. They want a government which encompasses uh, both the right wing religious and the more centrist parties. Um, so we'll see how that uh, works out. But the, the the elephant in the room will remain Netanyahu because you have many people in that now. Uh, joint list, who are anti-Netanyahu, again, not because of ideological reasons, I think probably every member of that list will be to the right of uh, Bibi on many issues, but more uh, that they deem him unfit uh, to lead, uh, lead, unfit to serve. But again, we go back to that point where we have not seen, and I believe probably we won't see much of an ideological battle, we won't see many policies come up. I, I said in the last couple of weeks personally to two leaders of major parties uh, on the Israeli political spectrum who are vying uh, in the next elections that 
I believe that the people are tired of this um, juxtaposition where they're going to sit on the political spectrum, who they're going to sit with, what kind of government that they won't sit with, who they uh, will, will boycott. Uh, the people are suffering, like many countries in the world, the cost of living has gone up, electricity, the cost of electricity has gone up, the cost of basic goods is going up, the cost of taxes, uh, municipal taxes is going up, uh, even the, the cost of subsidized bread in Israel, which has usually been a sort of barometer to see where the country is going, has gone up. Now, is this government responsible? That is certainly something that uh, former Prime Minister Netanyahu is going to uh, focus on. Uh, what we should know about former Prime Minister Netanyahu, and I've said this many times, he's an excellent campaigner, a, a really good politician, really understands the issues, really knows how to play to the public sentiment. And the fact is, uh, last week, or maybe earlier this week, he was in a supermarket calling out the cost of living, uh, very specifically, very directly. He had a crowd around him, and as usual, in these things, you know, we, we shouldn't, uh, you know, uh, read too much into a crowd because it's Clearly, when a politician goes to the streets and has a crowd around them, they are usually coordinated in advance. It's very rare, if ever, a politician goes to the streets uh, not knowing what kind of reception they'll receive and really just milling around the average Joe, as it were. They, they bring their people to the streets. They are very well versed in when to cheer, what to cheer, what to say and when. Uh, this is not just true of Israeli politics. This is true of many uh, democracies around the world. But the fact that Netanyahu was in a supermarket calling out the cost of living shows that that is uh, where the people really believe their pain is. And uh, as someone who works in elections around the world, I always say to clients, uh, before you even start a campaign, before you start to design a communication strategy, you first have to understand the pain of the people. What, where are they suffering? Where do they believe that they're suffering? And it's clear today that the average person is suffering because of the cost of living. Now, a lot of people in this current government will point uh, to great macro uh, economic issues, like the fact that uh, inflation is down, unemployment is down, uh, you know, that uh, we're doing much better than many of our OECD allies, et cetera, et cetera. But these are not things that drive voters. They don't care about that. They don't care about the fact that it could be you know, dictated by issues still to do with corona. They don't care about whether the cost of bread uh, is affected by a foreign war, as it clearly is with the Russian invasion of Ukraine. What they care about is their wallet, their bank account. And at the end of the day, they will blame uh, the only people that they can. And that is their uh, elected leaders. And when it comes time to vote, if they are unhappy, they will vote again. And there are a lot of people who are in this current government who still haven't understood that. They, they believe that on the macro level, the economy is doing well, which it is, but on the micro level, it is not. Um, and uh, BB, who has probably some of the best pollsters in the world, uh, very good American pollsters, have clearly told him what the pain is. And that is why you have seen, we have seen Netanyahu take to the streets, go to the supermarkets, talk about the cost of living uh, quite a lot because it's clear that his pollsters are telling him that is where the pain is. So if we can really sort of look at one issue, that really is it. Uh, it, is the, it's, it is going to be the cost of living. It's going to get worse before it's going to get better. There are signs uh, of some things getting better. And the problem is, for example, 
there may be some very good reforms that are coming up in agriculture that will save the average Israeli two or three shekels on a, on a pint of milk or, or yogurt here or there, but then they'll lose 50 shekels on a raise in, in gas prices or electricity. Um, so the more the Israeli government, uh, the, the current uh, members of the government talk about uh, the great reforms and the great uh, lowering of prices here and there, the more the public will shut it out because the public will just look at their bottom line and feel that this government is, isn't doing well. And the more that the opposition can jump on that, uh, the better it will be for them. Uh, the polls are still pretty tight. It's still one or two seats here or there could change the map. Most polls do not show the right-wing religious bloc having their necessary 61 yet. Um, and that could be the difference if they receive 59 or 60. Again, we go back to the situation. Can someone come across uh, from the other block or not? On the Palestinian issue, because I know that's an issue which concerns many around the world, but quite frankly, it is an issue which is not concerning the average Israeli. One doesn't feel it, but, but if one wants to uh, see the, the science behind it, the data shows that very few Israelis will vote on the Palestinian issue. The most recent poll that looked into what the issue which is most important to Israelis found only 4% uh, cared about the Palestinian issue. It's usually the, the parties on the extreme. No party uh, in the last four or five elections that I remember made the Palestinian issue a central issue, uh, made you know what, what's going to happen with that because it's just not an issue. It's been a relatively quiet year, something which perhaps the members of the government could take credit for and could perhaps use, but again, you know, when, when things are going well, you don't really remember. It's when things are bad that you remember. And today we had the controller, uh, the state controller's report on the riots that happened uh, during the last conflict, which was actually under the Netanyahu right-wing uh, government, when uh, you know Hamas rained rockets down on Israeli cities, when the mixed cities of Lod, Ramle, Haifa, Jaffa, and many others became battle scenes where uh, you know, uh, hordes of, of Arab uh, gangs took to the streets and shot up places, and there was basic, uh, complete disorder. The police were quite clearly caught unawares. Uh, the, the Israeli decision makers just really didn't know what to do, and it took quite a few days uh, to quell that violence. Uh, a lot of um, Israeli decision makers have tried to use the year since then to try and look into how to deal with this issue, and the fact that Ram win the government actually probably helped calm tempers a little bit because there was an understanding that things need to change at many levels, whether it's policing, whether it's on the economic or social level. Um, but the fact is it's clear that uh, the Israeli public will not tolerate uh, you know, similar disruptions as they did during the last uh, uh, war uh, in Gaza. Um, so those are some of the issues or non-issues uh, which we can identify so far. As I said, it is 96 days till the elections, but with the holidays uh, and the vacation, et cetera, et cetera, it's actually a far more narrow period. Uh, the government is trying to uh, you know, make their case to the people that the last government was good, that things are good on, on the security level, things are good on the macroeconomic level. The opposition, led by Netanyahu, want to show this was a government of failure, specifically focusing on, on, the, on the, uh, the, the cost of living. And at the moment, that seems to be the, the issue, if there is an issue uh, on most people's mind, because as I said, the parties 
are really not talking about the issues as much as they should be. They're not talking about policies. I have not heard from a single party what they would do actually to lower the cost of living. And I believe that the party that does that will actually be able to gun a little bit of the public's attention and perhaps be able to take votes from across the spectrum. Because again, these issues of left and right have been to a certain extent shattered in the last year with this government of left, right, center and Arabs of parties who are joining together from the center left and the far right, uh, as in the blue and white uh, New Hope Party uh, and some others. So uh, again, you know, the Israeli public, I believe, is yearning for uh, some policies. We're not hearing them. We're hearing more just politics, politics from the politicians. So I'm happy to answer any questions on these or any other issues uh, that you may want to bring up. Thank you so much. <clears throat> the first question we have is from an anonymous attendee. Uh, Netanyahu has played upon fear and racism in past elections. Do you think that he will use this ploy again in the coming election? Well, you know, the, the most identifiably sort of racist comment he made was uh, in the lead up to an election a few ago where he said the Arabs are are voting in their hordes. Um, it's, it's, it's not the greatest translation, but that was uh, sort of, uh, uh, you know, sort of uh, close, to, close to what he meant. And that was, by the way, I, I know for a fact that that was not something that was just uh, decided at the last minute. This was planned weeks, if not months in advance, that that was going to, that's what's, that was going to happen. And it actually became famous uh, because it, it got its own sort of meme in Israeli politics. Uh, it was then called, uh, it, was, it was called a gewalt, which is a Yiddish word means, I don't even know what it means, but most people who've ever heard this word know roughly what it means. It means sort of, you know, like, wow, a crazy thing, you know, a, a, the horror of something. And, and uh, after that, we became used to Netanyahu's gewalt moments, which usually happen on the day of elections, where he would put out a statement that the could is, is doing terribly, we have to get our people out even when he had clear data in front of him that the party was doing well, just to make sure they got those, you know, a few more votes. With the stakes being extremely high, with the race being extremely close this time, I'm sure that Netanyahu, with his uh, very wily strategists, are coming up with something else, have got a few tricks up their sleeve, they usually do. Um, so unfortunately, you know, as we've seen, Netanyahu will use many different tactics, uh, disregarding norms. Uh, you know, he had to apologize after uh, the elections for the Arab comment, uh, but I'm sure he would use something similar uh, in the future if it meant that he would get a few more votes. Uh, because as I said, he is a, you know, whether you like it or not, a brilliant strategist, a brilliant campaigner, a brilliant politician. Um, and he usually understands how to drive people to the ballot, which is again, something which is, is, is much needed because there's very few parties on the political map that, that really uh, drive the passions that uh, Netanyahu is able to with the Likud. Um, so I think that's where a lot of his comments come from. And I wouldn't be surprised if we may see, we may see something similar, maybe not on the, you know, the racial level or anti-Arab, but uh, on, on various other levels. We're already starting to see some comments come out of the Likud. So I'm sure they will, they will become uh, more divisive as the election campaign goes on. Thank you. On that note, are there any other politicians that are taking cues from Netanyahu's campaign tactics? Um, 
you could argue that many would like to, just none of them are as good. Uh, another issue, another thing that I mentioned to some of these leaders in the last couple of weeks is, uh, from my experience, is uh, you know, a winning campaign is one that controls the agenda, wherever it is. If you're controlling the agenda, you're winning. If you're just reacting to someone else's agenda, you're losing. Why? Because if someone is talking about the agenda, even for good or bad, then that is the person who's most uh, uppermost in people's minds. And that's the person who, you know, comes out uh, and says how they think it should be usually. Uh, and that's the plane that they want everyone speaking about. If Netanyahu understands that the cost of living is the weak underbelly of this government, by talking about it and by having the current government react to it, it's never going to work. If the current government wants, or members of the current government, want to do well at the polls, they're going to have to get it away from the cost of living. They're going to have to think of other issues uh, to try and rally their base and even bring uh, some uh, from you know, the soft voters from across the aisle. You know, the, the sort of undecideds or those who will just vote one way on a whim. They're not necessarily particularly partial to any one party. Uh, that's where the game is usually in, in election campaigns. Uh, but no one has really been able to do that. According to the polls, um, the, you know, the, 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 the voting patterns as we see it uh, are really within the blocks. You know, Gantz will maybe get a seat at the cost of Yashatid, or, you know, it, 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 doesn't, it doesn't seem to be moving too much from one side to the other. There, are, there aren't any game changers, even though may, many of them would like to say that they are. You know, Shaked and uh, Hendel today, uh, said that they could be the game changer in Israeli politics because they could sit with either side. But again, that's not necessarily true. And according to all polls at this point in time, they're not even expected to pass the threshold. So uh, they're not really a danger, even though uh, less than an hour after they decided to release publicly their, their new union, uh, they were attacked by um, the religious Zionist party of Betzalo Smotrich, who, you know, who sat with um, Yamina and uh, Eilat Shaked in the past, and uh, basically called them out again as a party who can sit with the left, bring the left to power, bring the Arabs to power, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, talking points that have been used many times, but it is effective. Um, so there isn't really, I, I, I don't see anyone really on the current Israeli political map who can match Netanyahu's rhetoric, campaign tactics, uh, and just you know understanding the pulse of the people. Um, but we're not into the heart of the elections yet. So we'll have to see if any of them have learned some new tricks. So that remains to be seen. Understood. Jack Wasserman asks, can you elaborate on Netanyahu's not being fit to govern? I mean, that's, I, I'm, I'm not giving my opinion here, but if you look at the spate of people across the political map who are ideologically aligned with Netanyahu or even to the right of Netanyahu, who are, you know, you know, viciously against him. Whereas, where if it was Naftali Bennett, Ayelet Shaked, U.S. Hendel, Tzvika Hauser, Avigdor Lieberman, uh, the list could go on. These are all people who have sat and worked with Netanyahu very closely, and are now because of that, they say he is not fit to lead. They are. These are the people who are basically boycotting Netanyahu. It's not even necessarily those who are ideologically opposed to Netanyahu, um, who are as rabidly against him becoming uh, prime minister. It's those who have sat next to him, who have seen, you know, seen the way he works, who have seen behind the scenes, 
who are saying that he is not fit to lead and he should not be allowed to go back to Balfour. He should not be allowed to go back to the premiership. So it's not those that are ideologically opposed. It's those that are ideologically aligned with him who are saying most uh, forcefully that he should not be allowed to return to the premiership. So that's what they're saying. You know, I don't think there's a day that uh, Avito Lehman doesn't put out uh, a statement by Netanyahu in the past. Uh, even half an hour before we came on, I saw an attack video by Yisrael Beitenu against uh, Netanyahu, and Netanyahu talks about, I can bring before the last elections, not the, the recent ones, but the one before that, I am the person who can bring security to Israel. And then they showed all these clips from uh, Gaza raining rockets down on Israeli communities. And as I said, the Arab rioting in the mixed cities. And the message there was under Netanyahu, there was no security. Whereas in the last year, there has been security. There's been maybe two or three rockets throughout the, the lowest amount of rockets, I think in many, many years. Um, <clears throat> so that debate will, will certainly go on. But <coughs> the idea that he's not fit to lead mostly comes from those who have sat very closely with him, who are ideologically aligned with him, or if not to the right of him. And those are the people who are saying it the most loud. Interesting. Uh, Stephen Orlo asks, is there any chance that Gantz would join Likud on the condition that he would get the first rotation as prime minister? So I heard this week that, again, you know, there, there's lots of rumors going around of secret deals and all this sort of thing that uh, if Netanyahu doesn't get a 61, there is a deal in place that the ultra-Orthodox would basically bring Gantz and Saar, because obviously they're sitting together, across the aisle, uh, and, and, but on one condition, that Gantz this time would go first in the rotation, but it would be in the hands of the ultra-Orthodox. Uh, the problem with that, if I was Gantz, is that um, if we remember last time that Gantz sat with Netanyahu in a government that was supposed to be rotation, Arya Deri, the leader of the Sephardic ultra-Orthodox party, said, I will guarantee it with my personal reputa reputation that uh, Netanyahu will pass uh, passed the rotation onto Gantz. And as we know, that certainly didn't happen. So, but it is something talked about. It is something that uh, is believed by many that that is going to be plan B if Netanyahu does not receive a 61. Uh, so that would be a right-wing government, right-wing religious government with Gantz at the helm. Uh, and that would certainly get way over the necessary 61 and maybe even close to the 70 mark. Uh, so that is what many people believe uh, will happen if, uh, if Netanyahu is not able to get a 61 on his own. Thank you. Michael Kerbel asks, why is this election any different from the, the recent previous ones? It's not, <laughs> it's my very short answer. Um, I mean, there is, uh, I said that rather flippantly, but there, there, are, there are a lot of differences. First of all, for the first time, we're going into election uh, where Netanyahu is not the incumbent. We haven't had that since 2011, 2011, 2013. 2013, because uh, obviously 2009 he came to power. Um, and it, it, makes, it makes a difference uh, because we see, uh, uh, you know, Yale appeared as prime minister. I think there isn't a day where he's not having a conversation with the foreign leader, he's not having a meeting today. He met with the King of Jordan. Uh, yesterday, he spoke to the British Prime Minister, the outgoing British Prime Minister, 
granted. Last week, as we know, uh, President Biden was in town. Uh, before that, I think we had the Prime Minister of the Czech Republic, or the President. Um, so, you know, there is something to be said. Netanyahu has used uh, these meetings in the past, these photo ops, to show himself as a diplomat, as a statesman on, in, on the world stage. Um, but we don't see that we won't see those this time because uh, you know th those sort of images are being pumped out regularly by Yelapid. But at the moment, it doesn't seem to be really making uh, too much of a change. Probably, it's making a change on the center center left, where Lapid is still remaining ahead significantly of uh, Benny Gantz, even though he has joined with Giron Saar. Uh, we have Gadi Eisenkot to be thrown into the mix, and apparently. Uh, former chief of staff and uh, the, people are talking about him as being a significant player. Uh, mostly his significance is going to be whether he goes to Yeshatid or Blue and White. Um, he has released sort of a, you know background information that he wants to go to a leader who has a significant chance of forming a government. And one could argue, even though Ye Lepid has the better, uh, better numbers, he's polling 2021 and Gantz is polling 13 or 14. Uh, as I said before, the plan B uh, after the elections, if Bibi doesn't get a 61, uh, could mean that Gantz has a far better chance than Lapid, because Lapid certainly would not be invited by the ultra orthodox uh, to form a government, whereas Gantz they're far more comfortable with. Um, so this is the decision Eisenhower has to make. If he goes to a smaller party, slightly smaller, but with a better chance of, uh, you know, uh, being, you know, their leader being the prime minister or he goes with a larger party, which has a, probably a greater chance of just being the leader of the opposition. Um, I don't see his joining either list a significant game changer. It may give a slight bump, but when it comes to elections, I don't think many people, he won't bring that much of an audience with him. But what it will be significant is where he goes, is where the wind is blowing as far as what could happen after election. And that idea that Gantz could be the plan B for the ultra-Orthodox parties, which will undoubtedly be the kingmaker after the elections, will tell us a lot about uh, where, it, if there is a truth uh, to that idea, that they will uh, say enough is enough to, to BB and, uh, and go to Gantz. Thank you. And before we go, we've had a couple of questions. Uh, Reuven Hawk asks, what do you think is the reason Russia is threatening to shut down the Jewish agency in Russia? Is Lapid handling it well? Well, Russia is a country that doesn't, uh, its leaders don't believe in coincidences. And, you know, for, for many, the Jewish agency is a, is a, is a non-governmental organization. It's one that deals with uh, issues reaching out to Jewish communities around the world, specifically on Aliyah, uh, on being allowed to live in Israel. Um, but it, it, I believe very strongly that it is, it is a signal. Russia are displeased uh, with Israel's um, you know, the way Israel is uh, standing on the, uh, the invasion of Ukraine, especially Yair Lapid. We talked about this last week. Yair Lapid took a far stronger line on, on the invasion, and now he's prime minister. So I think it's, uh, it's, it's a bit of a message. Uh, we heard also this week that uh, Russia actually did fire on some Israeli aircrafts on their many sorties over Syria, which the fact that this was released is also uh, a big part of the picture. Uh, you know, there's a lot around the, a lot of people around the world who kept on saying, why isn't Israel taking position on Russia? Well, this is the reason, because, you know, Russia is on Israel's doorstep. It's, you know, it's ruling over parts of Syria. 
where Israel needs to be able to get to Hezbollah uh, munitions, uh, Iranian transfer of significant weapons across the border to Hezbollah, uh, and even shooting from Syrian territory. Also, the fact that there's a large Jewish community in Russia, you know, all of these things had to be taken into consideration, and they were largely. Uh, but the fact that Russia has all these points of pressure against Israel uh, just shows really why Israel had to take the measured stance that it did for so long. Uh, has Yael Lapid uh, dealt with it well? I mean, I think as good as can be expected. I think it would pretty much be the same reaction no matter who was in office. I don't believe that Netanyahu's uh, relationship or Lapid's relationship or his predecessor Bennett's relationship would have really changed the facts. It's just, it's Russia showing displeasure with Israel's position um, on, the, uh, on the invasion uh, of, of Ukraine. And, you know, there's a lot of Western uh, pressure put on Israel to take a more forceful position as it has in recent months. It still hasn't, you know, gone too far. You know, it has to understand its place. Um, but Russia still has a lot of cards against Israel, which it certainly is starting to play. Thank you so much. All right, we've come to the close of our webinar and podcast. Ashley, thank you again for taking time to update us this week. For our viewers and listeners, please join us Friday at 1 p.m. Eastern for a webinar with Wasid Wasid discussing the Islamist threat in Britain. Thank you all for joining us, and I hope you have a wonderful day.